Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and we're talking the morning after the first general election mayoral debate. Uh, I was watching at home. Ben, you were there. Were you the guy that got thrown out? I did not get thrown out, but I uh, was watching as not just one person uh, got thrown out, but maybe others should have been. It was uh, it was really a, a sad spectacle. Um, you know, I will say the the mayor's campaign brought a lot of people. I think they learned from the primary debate that happened at Symphony Space, where this one was the first primary debate where the crowd was pretty anti de Blasio and it had an effect on the debate. Um, so the mayor had they, the mayor's campaign had a bunch of supporters there and they were ready to sort of respond to loud crowd noise with like chance of four more years, which they did. But I'll say that it seemed like the real rowdy folks disrupting were either Malietakis supporters, Deedle supporters, or just anti de Blasio people in, in the audience. Um, and it was it was just a bad scene for a debate about serious issues that, that really got overshadowed by both the crowd behavior and, and Bo Deedle's behavior on the stage. Yeah, it's, you know, one wants to have the crowd there, one wants people to be engaged, like all of that is good. And it's you know, terrible to think about whether you would have to have a debate in an empty room. That seems sort of strange. But, you know, for, especially for folks watching at home, it really does kind of pollute the experience. It makes it hard to hear what people are saying, just to get answers out of them. It takes up valuable time. It was a 90-minute debate, but it felt like it could have gone on much longer. And I think it fed with Deedle on stage into, you know, the unfortunate exercise of them having to cut off his mic, which is obviously the last thing you want to have happen in a debate. And I think um, the moderator, Errol Lewis, was correct in doing that. But um, it just was not an environment conducive to a kind of uh, honest exchange of, of ideas. Well, what's interesting is that, I mean, there's a really good stark contrast between de Blasio and Malitakis, And they have some ideas. They have different philosophies. I mean, they both have some bad sort of campaign habits and, you know, ways of obfuscating and, you know, all that. But they still have substantive policies and differences and just that sort of comparison was there but it was really overshadowed and you know I was thinking this and you know tweeting this at the time like you know I really just want to see a debate between the two of them and I don't know that we're going to get it and if we do it'll be November 1st which is six days before election day and so uh, you know I mean Bo Dito was literally sort of groaning grunting into the microphone while de Blasio was talking a lot it was really just it not. Was, I mean, I guess to some degree that did give us a correct impression of the options that voters have among those three, sure. right? You have two establishment politicians with very different views of what government should be in de Blasio and Maliotakis, and you have a person who is honest, that he rejects all of the sort of normal decorum and practice of politics that does not emphasize his policy positions that really is an embodiment of sort of frustration and rage at the system. And that's who Dietl is. It's, it's you know, grunting into the microphone and kind of waving your hand dismissively as he did throughout the debate. So to that extent, I guess it was an accurate representation of what they present. It just wasn't a very detailed one because we couldn't hear everybody talking. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. And that's that's a, a good thing, I guess. You know, Bo is going to be on the ballot and he's raised and spent a good bit of money and done a bit of campaigning and had some policy proposals and stuff. So uh, I think it was good for voters to see him, you know, for who he is and, and get a sense. Um, 
So how do you think um, the mayor performed? Let's start with him and then move on to the other candidates. Well, I, I was not surprised by the mayor. I thought that, you know, he's a careful debater, um, a skillful person at, at basically not taking chances or making mistakes, and he didn't make any big mistakes that I could detect. Um, you know, I think he mounted a, a, a strong and articulate defense on mental illness, on homelessness. It was uh, interesting to see him answering the questions on Rikers, where he clearly had been pushed into his current position of wanting to close it, um, or saying that he wants to put the city on the path of closing it. I thought that he referred to pre-K too often. Um, I feel like he kind of sets up a trap where it seems like he is playing a broken record. It's a big accomplishment, but just rhetorically, the word was said a lot by him. And I was disappointed, but um, I suppose I understand strategically why he began the debate by highlighting the ideological difference, that his two opponents are conservative Republicans who supported Donald Trump. Um, that line makes a lot of sense. It doesn't really fairly deal with people's different positions on issues and it's kind of using labels in the place of an actual argument but I understand why he did it I just think it was a little predictable and a little simplistic I agree with you about pre-k um, you know it seemed like the atmosphere might have rattled him a little bit you know he didn't look unhinged or anything and he didn't really get off his talking points but it was almost like because of the chaos around him he almost even then sort of shrunk a little bit into his most narrow responses. He was also on the defensive a lot, as you would expect for an incumbent. It was attack, attack, attack from both competitors. They barely referenced each other or talked to each other. Um, and, you know, that's what you expect. It's interesting because he could point in a lot of different directions about things he's doing. Sure, you might open yourself up to some other attacks if you reference, let's say, NYCHA or small business fines that the city has drastically reduced. Um, obviously, there's real problems for small businesses in the city and lots of storefronts boarded up. So that's why I say maybe you open yourself up to some attacks there if you bring in other issues. But it is, it, you know, it is repetitive when you when your answer for almost everything is pre-K or, you know, the, the city's uh, safety is at record, you know, uh, the crime is at record lows or the city's, you know, biggest, uh, safest big city in America. You know, it's, it's a little repetitive and, and, you know, maybe you just really want to hit those themes home. But there's a lot of other stuff to talk about. And he had windows because you can take those answers in any direction you want to talk about other aspects of his record. He could even talk about, you know, new efforts at resiliency. He could talk about his parks initiative. I mean, you name it. Um, so it felt it felt fairly narrow in scope. I agree with that. Molly Otakis, on the other hand, obviously faced a very different test in the debate. And I thought she performed well. I thought that she came very well prepared, clearly with modules uh, in mind on different issues, whether it's homelessness or transit. Um, obviously, you know, you could quibble with a lot of the facts and a lot of the kind of premises and assumptions built into her answers. Um, and many of them totally glossed over what she would do instead. Um, you know, some of them, it was particularly interesting to hear her talking about the need to involve nonprofits in developing housing on NYCHA um, and to talk about homelessness. Um, you know, without a lot of detail on what she would do in terms of short-term solutions. I think she performed well, um, and I think, you know, she probably was one of the victims of the general atmosphere of the debate, the, you know, zaniness of it, the, um, the noise and the disorder, because instead of the storyline this morning being about 
you know, the merit of any of her attacks or the substance of any of her proposals. Uh, it's about the fact that this was just kind of a, a free-for-all. A zoo, yeah. You, so I think, uh, I think it goes in a couple ways. I think that on one hand, she had a little bit less opportunity to sort of make her mark and make uh, her real dent into de Blasio. On the other hand, though, I think the atmosphere, and maybe this is just my lens, uh, and I, I want it to apply to more people, but maybe it doesn't, uh, I think the debate showed that Deedle is not a real serious uh, candidate, and so it gives her that leg up that, like, oh, this is the, this is the serious uh, alternative to de Blasio in this race. I want that to be the takeaway because I think that that's the truth. I don't know that that many people watching weren't sort of, oh, hey, here's a, you know, sort of Trump-like character who will shake things up and is loud and brash and, you know, a New Yorker who shouted, let's go Yankees with the first, you know, at his opening statement. Um, So my sense is my analysis is that she proved that, that she's a serious challenger to de Blasio. She should really be where the anti-de Blasio vote goes. Um, but at the same time, it was a struggle for her to really break through. And you could almost see on her face some of the time, like, okay, Bo, you know, finish up and, and let's let the sort of adult conversation, um, continue. Yeah, you could definitely see that. And, and just, you know, I think that, uh, you make a good point in that so many people, the, the impact of the debate, and we'll talk about this more later, is really in the sound bites, the overall impression, not the kind of point by point. Um, analysis, but you and I both watched it, and obviously for for our purposes, those points do make sense. And so one of the issues we should talk about, because it it had a lot of discussion during the debate, is uh, public safety, where there were some interesting exchanges. The mayor wants to run around the city and say, we are the safest big city in the world. That is not true if you are a woman in this city. increase in felony sex crimes in this city, and he is turning a blind eye to that. I believe that it's extremely important that we continue to build relationships between the police department and the public, but we need to invest in youth programs. There is a great program in my district, Atlas Cops and Kids, and it's a boxing program. It's something, everyone knows I like boxing. It is something that I truly believe in, to build relationships with our young people, but I do not believe that we should be eliminating penalties for quality of life crimes, like public urination, like littering. What you heard from the assembly member were classic right-wing Republican scare tactics. And so, you know, it was not new for Malliotakis to kind of pinpoint particular crimes that she says are increasing, and the stats do show that they are increasing, to indicate that really one of the signal accomplishments of de Blasio, which is the fact that despite reducing stop and frisk and reducing arrests a great deal and imprisonment as well, crime has continued to fall, um, trying to kind of undercut that. Um, 
you know, that is an argument that she has practiced a lot. I think framing it in the, in the lens of gender is um, interesting. I don't know how fair it is or accurate. Women obviously are victims of other crimes too, and those have decreased. But I also thought de Blasio responded to that fairly well. I mean, he had to see it coming, um, but this is uh, an argument that he has had to make a lot and, um, you know, kind of especially basically putting anyone who criticizes his public uh, criminal justice policy as being a critic of the NYPD. Right. That's a very smart tactic. The problem with de Blasio doing it is he has this reputation that that's not really how he feels and what he thinks. And so I think it depends who you are and how that lands with you. Right. Um, I think one of the things that is sort of indisputable is that he says, if you're sort of challenging the crime numbers, you're basically saying that, you know, the police commissioner and others at the NYPD are fudging these things. And that's sort of a third rail of, of city politics because especially sort of in the middle and the right of the spectrum, folks are, you know, supposed to traditionally just, you know, be all in on supporting the NYPD and, and tougher on crime and, and not doubting that the numbers coming out of one police plaza are accurate. So that's a solid argument from him. But when you sort of dig in um, on approach to public safety, you know, the mayor still controls the NYPD. So there's room to say, hey, if these types of crimes are up, it's because the mayor's, you know, policies are allowing that, I guess. Um, she didn't, she hasn't really made that connection, though. Mm -hmm. She sort of... Well, that's it, right. So she goes back to the, you know, reduced enforcement around quality of life crimes, like public urination, mm -hmm. and never really connects... Which there's no evidence. Right, as Broken Windows has always struggled to connect. What's the connection between quality of life enforcement and these felony sex crimes, which includes things like obscenity... Um, female genital mutilation. It's kind of a catch-all for felonies of a sexual nature that are not rape and therefore not part of the major seven crimes. Um, really no, under no, no talking about how she would approach law enforcement in a way that would reduce those crimes. Because frankly, they're, they're probably difficult crimes to, to reduce. A lot are domestic in nature. There's, there are, you know, increased touching and such on the subways that are, that is an issue. I've asked the NYPD about this at press conferences and the mayor and I, you know, have said, what do you attribute this to? How are you combating it? And they are confounded by a lot of this because a lot is of domestic nature and it's not always that easy to get into homes and prevent these things. A lot of it is about raising awareness and encouraging people to report. And so that's where the NYPD says, you know, some of these increases are because we're encouraging people to report. The culture has changed a bit where people are more uh, willing to report, although there's still all sorts of challenges around that, of course. Um, so there's a tricky ground there. And again, like I said, she hasn't really made the case about how the mayor's policies have led to the increases that she pointed to. Um, I think the mayor sort of, uh, his response is, again, you know, uh, by saying you're denigrating the, the hard work of the NYPD, they came across to me as a little bit glib. I mean, I sort of believe him, but... Um, I want to hear him answer sort of what are we doing about this, right? I mean, there are some increases in, in certain statistics. Um, overall, the city's heading in a great direction. I mean, murders might be well, well below the record low this year. So, like, you know, there's a lot of good stuff, but he could still address the fact mm -hmm. that certain things are up and they, they need to do things about them. And, of course, his approach to policing and the resources given to the NYPD figured into another discussion during the debate about budgeting. 
We invested in, first of all, making sure we had those huge reserves. We've never seen anything like this in the history of the city, specifically to protect us against the downturn or against some of the pernicious things we see happening in Washington. That's one piece of it. But also, 2,000 more cops on patrol in New York City in the last two years. 2,000 more cops on patrol. Pre-K teachers to make sure our kids get the kind of start they deserved all along in every zip code in this city. The investments we're making are to make this a stronger city. I forgot to mention that he tripled his number of special assistants at City Hall. I don't know why anyone, any manager, any good manager, needs 300 special assistants. And when we're spending, when we're spending $15 billion more and we still have roads that are broken, we have subways that don't run, we have a homeless crisis, we have so many issues that are plaguing our city, then that is, that is the, the <laughs> it is the epitome of mismanagement. And so, yes, like the Department of Design and Construction. Why does it cost $2 million to build a bathroom in Brooklyn? So this is a fascinating sort of sore spot, and I think the question that was posed on this to the mayor was a really good one by, I believe, Grace Rao of New York One, which was, um, how can New Yorkers be sure that this large growth in the budget under your leadership um, isn't too dangerous for the city? And what's, you know, are we really prepared for a downturn that's likely to come at some point, um, you know, the mayor defended himself fairly well by saying, you know what, these are investments. We've invested in more cops. We've invested in pre-K teachers, sanitation, et cetera, et cetera. These are services for New Yorkers. There's still a lot of alarm about this budget growth, though, which is about 18% over his tenure. Yeah. And I think one thing that's posed by that question is it's not, it's obviously there is the overall uh, total of the budget, and that is a concern to many people, but also the investments and in, in why you invest in one place other than the other. And I think the question about the number of special assistants he has, even though that total number is not a major part of New York's massive budget, it talks about priorities, it talks about this idea that he's trying to build sort of a cult of personality, that it's a very personalized approach to the mayoralty, um, all those critiques that we've heard about him uh, before. So I think that is an interesting uh, question. I think he dealt with it well on the investment part. He wasn't really pressed on the special assistance. When it was Maliotakis's turn, she could talk about the number of assistants as an indictment of the mayor, but then she was pressed on how she would deal with Reducing what are you going to cut? Which is the, the, the question you always ask about a fiscal hawk. And she said something like, we have to streamline these agencies. It costs too much to build a bathroom. And of course, this is true. I've known it for a long time. The reasons are complex. And, it, you know. But, but, but we're not. But the part of the problem with that answer is that's actually not about the budget that was asked. That's, that's the, right, capital yes, the capital budget. Question, so, exactly. you know, the, the capital budget wasn't even really part of that discussion. The capital budget has grown immensely as well. But that's sort of a different discussion. She's absolutely right. Fine. But the question about the budget was about the expense budget, the operating budget, right? And the only thing that she has named is cutting special assistance, which is right. a drop in the $85 billion budget. So she doesn't have an answer on that. She's right. been repeatedly asked that. And I think that's one flaw of her campaign that was laid bare in the debate is that she doesn't have answers for a lot of things. She has she critiques. Does it, right. And her critique is also limited, too, because when you talk about the budget, it's not just the expenditure side, which when you dig down in the numbers, it is hard to identify 
what do you cut, right? Because it all makes sense when looked at in isolation. On the revenue side, though, she did make some reference to the increase in property tax assessments under de Blasio. He's not raised the tax rate. Assessments have gone up, so property tax revenues have. That is a huge, maybe fourth rail of city politics that uh, most likely someone will try to touch after the election. De Blasio has said he will. She has hinted at uh, the problems in the property tax system. But there's an area where if she had some um, maybe more temerity, she would talk about the flaws in the property tax system, what she wants to do about it. It's hard to do that without establishing some winners and losers at the outset. But um, if she wanted to talk about the mayor and his budgeting and where it actually hurts people, you don't really talk about the expense side because that's a bit abstract. You talk about how they generate the revenue that pays for it. So two things on that. One, she needs to have other answers on, here's the things I would cut. Here's the places I would do some slicing. That's not that hard to do in an $85 billion budget. I agree with you when you look at it, it is often, well, that's that's good investment, that's good investment, parks, you know, NYCHA, et cetera, whatever. But she needs an answer on that. But number two, totally agree with you. You know, it's very smart, especially the way she's running her campaign. She wants to scoop up basically, you know, 90% of the homeowners, right, in New York City. Uh, so appealing on property taxes makes sense. She brought this up at a recent speech I was at, at, at Association for Better New York. She was asked after, are you going to put out a property tax reform plan? And she basically said, maybe. I don't know if I'll have one before Election Day. I'm talking to a lot of people. Again, put out a plan. Put out at least the sketches and say, you know, I'm not the mayor. I don't have the resources necessarily. I haven't been in there. But here are the principles that I would use to reform the system. Anyway. Uh, that's something to continue to push her on. As part of the budget question, there was also something that uh, Bo Deedle had to respond to. Tax problem that was there, I fought for 12 years of residency in New York City to 4.5%. That's what that reflected. I had a payment plan of 25000 a month, which is almost finished now. So that's not true. Last year, I showed my, my tax returns of $1.8 million that I earned, and I paid $600,000. I take exception to what you're saying because you read the papers. Sometimes they don't have the truth in the papers. Well, how we can how we can how we can cut how we can cut some of the fat? First of all, I'll get rid of this 25 million plus of consultants and special assistants that he tells nobody what they do. That's part of it. 14 percent increases. In. I got no, and I got a little problem when you talk about my taxes because there is no problem with my taxes. There are things called payouts. Twenty-five thousand dollars a month paid out, and it's almost paid out. So I take exception, and that's false. And you can check with the New York State tax. That's another way that you're trying to take me down. But you know what? What'd you make last year? I made one point eight million, okay? And I paid six hundred thousand dollars taxes. So I'm paying my taxes. If you hadn't watched the, if you didn't watch the debate last night, um, and you don't plan to watch it, though, I suggest you do. This really does. I think it's fair to say sum up. Bo's approach to the debate. You know, he was speaking at the top of his voice. Um, he was referring a lot to um, a sense of persecution on his part, to his personal success. Uh, there was in there an implicit attack uh, on the media for being unfair to him. And this was Bo's presentation. Um, and I think, you know, it, it kind of speaks for itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that his finances are fascinating. I think there's a lot of room to sort of explore his investments and the things he's done. I don't know that that's a great use of anybody's resources considering, you know, in, he showed himself as he did, as we've discussed in this debate, and also 
I mean, in the Quinnipiac poll, he was behind Sal Albanese, who wasn't even then on the debate stage, and that's because of the campaign finance board rules around fundraising spending as qualifying versus polling. Um, but, you know, I don't know how much sense it makes to dig further into Dito, but he's an interesting character. I don't know that he's always been on the up and up in terms of his taxes and other finances, um, but I agree with you that that uh, captured things think, well. Just to talk about Dito for a second, sure. sh- one, of the, one of the tragedies, if you want to put a serious spin on it, about the way the debate played out last night is I, I do think Bo has some interesting things to say on some issues. You know, I think that he was the candidate who had the most to prove last night. She had the most to lose. Uh, maybe de Blasio had some risk. But, you know, in terms of introducing himself to people and, and suggesting that he was more than just the talking head who's been on Fox News and the guy who was in the Arby's commercials, you know, a chance to say, I mean, his idea, for example, to remove the college requirement from becoming a new police officer, that's a legitimate idea. You know, there are reasons to sure. be for it or against it. There's something to that. Some of his other policy ideas on his website, actually, you know, there's some substance there. I don't know if he's the one who wrote them, but he put them up there, yeah. so he gets some credit for that. Uh, but none of that came out because everything was at, you know, Volume 11, shouting, very personal. Um, and, and the stream uh, of consciousness thing that yeah. he does is, I mean, it's really self-defeating because he starts to answer something and his mind just jumps around. And next thing you know, you know, he's asked about school segregation and he's talking about rebanning cell phones. That's a legitimate policy position saying we should reinstitute this ban on cell phones that de Blasio, you know, rolled back from the Bloomberg years. Okay, you can say that about managing classrooms, but that's not a response on school segregation. You know, so he's he's all over the map and, and, and you know, as you said, doesn't really allow himself to, to have his policy positions come forward. That actually gives us a chance to segue into other issues. Talked about the debate. Education was one of them. Uh, de Blasio pressed with a, an excellent question about... Um, school segregation and the effect it has on school performance and whether it's possible to improve school performance without addressing that. Um, His answer was detailed. Um, He did talk about some steps they are taking. I think it was a it was an question an episode where the mayor was was lucky that the other two people on stage weren't really going to press him on desegregating schools for a lot of reasons because in the end, he said basically that schools that are willing to try to change the demographics, we can work with them, which obviously puts the onus on the schools that are themselves, um, you know, manifestly unequal. So he didn't really answer the question well, um, but his opponents went in totally different directions. It's sort of amazing. Totally agree with you. You know, one contrast that's interesting because the mayor's, you know, homelessness was also discussed at length. Um, and, you know, one of the big topics that relates to homelessness is the mayor's plan to sort of open 90 new shelters while closing down use of hotels and cluster sites. Um, It's sort of interesting that the mayor recognizes sort of homelessness as this emergency where it's going to be necessary to sort of force shelters into communities, um, but he's not willing to sort of take the risk to force more school desegregation into communities, and he's fighting affordable housing projects and rezoning somewhere in the middle there, you know, a little more gumption, but also being very careful about the pace. Um, so I think that's one interesting theme is about how much sort of local battling the mayor's willing to do. And obviously rezoning schools is another sort of third rail of, of politics and a very tough one. And the mayor has all but admitted that, you know, lots of people have made uh, decisions about where to buy homes and where to live based on their school districts and we have to respect some of those decisions and 
uh, he's walking a very delicate line there, and I thought, as you said, you know, Errol's, Errol Lewis's question there was one of the, the best of the night. Um, you know, they were asked about Riker's closure. Nobody really said anything different. Did you hear anything there? Noteworthy? I thought that Molly Takas's answer there was um, was one of her most detailed and sort of sober of the night. I thought I thought she handled that pretty well. Um, it was ironic, obviously, to hear the mayor talking about his plan, as I said before, that you know he was reluctant to embrace. Um, and of course, you know, Deedle at one point mentioned that. Um, de Blasio putting off the actual closer date 10 years suggested a failure of leadership, uh, but Bo does not support closing records, so it was a kind of bifurcated critique there. I thought that the discussion about um, homelessness was interesting, Deedle saying the mayor has done nothing, which of course is not true, um, Maliataka saying that he's turned homelessness into a business, um, which is a very, very sharp critique of the use of hotels and cluster site apartments, a practice that de Blasio did not inaugurate, but obviously has reached uh, very controversial proportions under him. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, unless there's anything else you want to discuss, why don't we wrap on affordable housing? Um, this is one of the last questions of the night. Um, we haven't talked about the transit and congestion question, but um, folks can check that out. And there were a few others that we haven't touched on. But on affordable housing, basically the question was, how do you rein in developers? How much affordable housing can you build? Um, this is obviously something that you guys cover really, really well and in detail at City Limits. Um, what did you hear there? I mean, I'll just say quickly that, you know, the mayor has his plan. He continued to sort of explain it and justify it. Um, and I didn't hear a lot from the other two candidates. What was fascinating to me was, I don't think there was a lot new on this, but Malia Takas' positioning on this is fascinating because she talks about the relatively f small number of units set aside in the mayor's plan for people making less than 25000 uh, which by implication means fewer units, if, if she were to have her druthers, for people in the middle class. Um, she talked about how she did not like the fact that the mayor was going to lease parts of NYCHA to private entities, um, which is um, strange, just because um, conservatives you are part of think, the, yeah. conservatives are part of the reason that just in the mess they're in. Uh, generally, support privatization. She said she wants nonprofits to be in the lead in affordable housing deals that involve public resources, or, or that's generally what she meant. So, a sign that Malia Takis, um, who builds herself as the common sense alternative to De Blasio, really trying to pick up different pools of resentment of the mayor, people who oppose one of his policy moves for one reason or the other, some of which would not normally be, and an election day may not be, um, in the same column as a person who voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. No, I think that's right, but it's really strange, and it's indicative of her campaign in a couple ways. One, she doesn't really have a plan. Two, She's sort of using anecdotes, right, to hammer him. She talked about one playground that they're going to remove from a NYCHA property that the mayor said, and I don't know the full details on this, so I can't fact check this yet, um, but I'll look at it. Uh, you know, the mayor said, yeah, we're going to recreate the playground a little ways away, but we're building, you know, new affordable housing on this property. Um, but anyway, using sort of an anecdote to, to make a point, you know, he's, he's giving away land at this one project uh and it's a playground so you know i mean that 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 raises some people's eyebrows and that's smart so is mentioning you know these different slashing incidents around the city right it's sort of anecdotal but it but it raises 
you know, your ire a little bit and makes you think about whether what the mayor's selling is really true. Um, but it's a little bit of a, a dodge of sorts because it's not presenting a plan. It's sort of, you know, giving this way of critique that um, doesn't necessarily translate across the city. Uh, I totally agree with you. You would think that the conservative in the race would be saying we have to do whatever it takes, including embracing the private sector to increase affordable housing and get NYCHA uh, back on track. Um, all right. Where are we heading? Yeah. yeah good let's, question. Let's, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the big question for you and me and people who spend our lives covering this stuff is, uh, does any of this matter? Um, you know, I don't think anything happened last night to change the trajectory of the race. I don't think Molly Takas hurt herself in terms of her reputation, her potential viability for running for office in the future. I don't think she wowed anybody because I don't think she had much in the way of substance. But, you know, she prosecuted her case well. Um, and I think that what will be, I guess, telling between now and the next debate, which is November, November 1st, 1st, a ways yeah. away, and just before the election is, you know, do we hear any more from de Blasio on what he wants to do? Does he open up any of those potential lines of attack by talking about more of his accomplishments or more of his plans? Or does he look at the polls and realize he's on the glide path and, you know, just keep repeating the mantra that we're getting tired of but seems to be working? I think it's going to be largely a rose garden strategy from the mayor, which others have pointed out. You know, he'll sort of mostly hide, I think. Uh, he might come out with some new ideas and have, you know, a couple of big splashy press conferences maybe He'll have some big rallies, you know, that type of stuff. Um, but I don't think he's going to be very daring. Um, I think, you know, the Maliotakis campaign, I think, has been run um, mediocre at best. Um, and, you know, I think what she needs to do is be just hammering everything from small to medium to big new ideas from here to that debate. Um there's no reason that virtually every day she couldn't have a press conference with some new idea. Um, I hate to make this reference, but, you know, she should basically take a page from the Anthony Weiner playbook of, you know, his keys for the city. He had dozens and dozens of small to medium to large ideas, uh, very substantive, some a little bit gimmicky, but like showing that you're a thinking person and not just critiquing the, you know, the person you're replacing. Um, so I think she needs to really show something here and gain more and more momentum. I think she performed very well. And I think she should really hope beyond hope that it's just her and the mayor in the, in the second debate. Well, we'll talk again next week, Ben, and by then I hope, like Bodito, I can say that I have it.